This is RDQI. So to wrap up our series on value, we brought in our very good friend Garrett to talk about value systems, which are really just the way that individuals determine what's valuable to them. This conversation is right up the alley for all you philosophy buffs out there. But for those who aren't, the conversation can get a little bit heady. But I encourage each of you to try and listen because we're talking about some really, really important things, like how critical it is to constantly reflect on and refine our value systems over the course of our lives. Garrett is truly a wellspring of wisdom. I've learned so much from him over the years, and my hope is that you will too. So definitely pay attention to what he has to say. I really hope that you've enjoyed this entire value series. I know you're going to enjoy this episode. And in the spirit of self-reflection and self-betterment, we would really love to hear your feedback. So shoot us a DM on Instagram, comment on our post on Instagram, send us an email, handwrite us a letter, however you want to do it. We want to make this a really great show. So please tell us what you like, what you don't like, what you'd like to hear. If you'd just rather us shut up altogether, whatever you have to say, we want to hear it. Thanks so much. I hope you enjoy the episode. What Irishman spends all of his days outside and has the best deal on lawn and garden items? Why, that's Patio Furnitures. Come on down and when you spend $100 or more, you get a free bottle of whiskey. Must be 21! So, Rai, we've been talking about value in this global sense, right? You know, economics is is how we determine value for trade. But where does value really begin? You know, currency has value because we all agree that it has value. But what makes us agree that something has value, or really even if we just look at individuality, get away from the economics discussion, what makes something valuable to you as an individual? Yeah, oh, that's a good question. Um, Especially because, I mean, one thing we can talk about, touch on really briefly here is economics views individuals as rational actors, right? That these people make decisions rationally and then they act on them. But if you look at psychology or even the study of ethics, people aren't considered rational actors and those from those perspectives. So you can, you know, you can have different ways of looking at what value even means entirely, which is I think kind of what you're getting at here, Dave. And I think it's a great question because we have a friend with us here. Um, would love to introduce Garrett to the to the podcast and get us going because I think this is right up your alley, Garrett. Yeah, it really is, and <clears throat> it's good to see you guys. So you too. Um, yeah. Cheers. Thank you for having me. Uh, I think the question of where value begins is. I mean, that's that's the question for me. Um, you know, I teach science to little kids, so I always try to take the thing all the way down to the very base. And the very base of, of what value is to me is uh, how you choose to act in every single moment. You know, like every single moment is an opportunity to go left or right. And even when you have to do it reflexively, you're still making a decision based on your value systems, you know. Um, so the way I really see it is value begins with the human mind. And then all of the economics and everything, the way we choose to treat the world around us, evolves from 
those simple decisions, almost binary computer decisions of left and right at every moment. Yeah, and I think you, I think we see that just in the idea of rational actors and how who you are is going to depend or is going to change how you think of individuals as a whole. Um, but why do you think we have value systems? I mean, where do they come from? I mean, we're not born with them, are we? Um, I mean, technically you are. You know to go for your mother's teat rather than something sharp. So, so let me ask you a question because I love the left and right thing, mm-hmm. right? You get to a choice and you have to make a choice and you choose left or right. But, I mean, obviously different people will choose left, different people will choose right. There's some sort of, you know, speaking the language of a computer program, right? There's There's coded language in the background that says, if this, then this, right? I mean, that's that's a value system in a way, you know, you're thrown a decision and why do you make the decision? Like, well, uh, my immediate, I don't want to go like too deep, too fast or anything, but like my immediate answer is uh, Richard Dawkins selfish gene, you know, like that's because your DNA molecule evolved in a hostile environment and decided to surround itself with a cell wall to protect itself from being disassembled by other replicator molecules while it was itself replicating. And then it got more complex over 500 million years. And now you're here. Um, You're still just a survival machine for that DNA. So it's come with a lot of programs from your ancestors that are going to protect you and force you to go, well, I guess suggest you to go left or right. That's where the rational actors comes in because we have instances where people make decisions that aren't in their best survival interests. And uh, that's, you know, bizarre. But at the same time, yeah, you have a whole massive amount of computer programming way underneath your consciousness that is telling you to go left or right. I think the whole reason we're even having this conversation is because value is interesting given consciousness. If you take consciousness out, you just have a bunch of robots going left or right in the face of stimuli. Sure, sure. So we're encoded with, uh, let's say, a root code, right, from our DNA. Yeah. That's going to vary a little bit from person to person, but overall, human DNA, we're not, um, the diversity is immense in what we can see and how we perceive the world, but I'm sure from a DNA perspective, the diversity isn't quite as much as we would think it would be. Am I right on that one? I would imagine it's almost zero, yeah. Yeah. But (laughs) what I think is fascinating is, so we all start with this base code, and then we're indoctrinated from day one, assuming we grew up around other humans. I mean, obviously, if you're, you know, you're a baby and you're just left alone in the forest, it's going to be a different experience than if you live in a family, right? And that family is going to start teaching you through like positive affirmations and then negative affirmations, what is good and what is right. And that's kind of the beginning of your domesticated value system, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, maybe even you might even go so far as to say the value system that's really worth talking about, you know, like the other stuff seems scientific and rudimentary. And once you get into like the social aspect, like real chaos takes over, you know? Yeah. Survival, you know, maybe there's reasons why one person would choose left over right. But, you know, given a survival instinct, right, I'm hungry everybody's going to choose right. They're not going to choose. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, right. Is it warm and lush over there? Let's go there. (laughs) Well, that that kind of depends. I mean, 
throw a wrinkle into that equation where it's like, okay, you are a father and you can eat and your child cannot eat or the inverse, your child can eat and then you could not eat. Mm. I think in that case, probably I'm going to say 10 times out of 10, the father is going to be like, no, let my child eat. Well, in our society now, you know, I saw a video of a, uh, some I don't remember the bird, but she had three hatchlings, and she grabbed the weakest one and dropped it out of the nest because she didn't want to feed it. You know, so sure. like, and humans have done that throughout its history too. Well, that's what I'm saying. Like, that's I I I really feel like sticking on that phrase, rational actors, and because I'm enjoying uh, marketing specialists and whatnot, like looking at the bell curve and being like, let's market to these ninety percent because these ten are freaking crazy. You know? like, <laughs> we can't count on them. You know, yeah. Uh, yeah, but that's, I mean, as soon as you get out of uh, like a binary survival choice of I'm by myself in the woods and I see food and I haven't eaten in three days, 100% of the people are going to choose to. But if you get out of the survival and, and it could be as simple as I, I feel like the rational actor comes in as soon as there is a choice that doesn't have a clear right answer. Sure. Um, because even something like the you know, are you going to feed your child or feed, you know, it's like, that sounds very simple, but it is counter to preservation of, of the self in a way. Um, Actually uh, in Richard Dawkins, selfish gene, he talks about uh, if you are still of child, if an organism that he didn't put it on humans directly because there's emotional connotations, but uh, if you're an organism uh, your desire is to have your genes go out into the world. Like that's your DNA's desire. So if you have the choice of saving yourself or your child and you're still of childbearing age, especially if you're a male, the they, the male will save themselves almost every time because they can make 15 more of that child hmm. and the child only has 50% of their DNA. You know, it's there's a math. That's why he calls it the selfish gene because you can look at statistics across different like biological ecosystems it's not just uh organisms but whole ecosystems that are using this math to like ruthlessly decide which of their family to save and which not so okay so that's an interesting thing i think we should talk about is how how much uh i hate to use this but i feel it it's it's a good word how much free will do we have in any of these choices? You know, it's, it's, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I would say something like putting your own mask on first before assisting a child is, is counterintuitive, but it makes a lot of, you know, it's, if you think about it in this conscious way, you can realize, oh yeah, this instinctually, I want to help my child first, but Mm -hmm. I know rationally, this is the way to do it. Um, I guess is is there a point where we're not just operating on a on code, you know? Mm-hmm. Right. Oh man, it you could have a whole you could write books and books and books about free will, um, and there have been books and books and books about it. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I would say yes. I mean, I, with a million caveats that we do have free will. <laughs> Cool. <laughs> so that's why I wanted to I was hesitant to say the word. This could be a five-hour podcast, right? Right. No, but I think what you're bringing up is, um, we still have a, some control over what our actions are. Now, how great our control is, I don't know. I think it's on a spectrum. It's not a black-white issue. Um, mm-hmm. and I think there are 
different things that allow people to have more control in their life, which I think is actually inherently tied to that individuals and the culture that they're in, the um, value systems they're in. Um, I think if you are an individual who feels a part of a community and has a deeply ingratiated role in that community through the value system that the individual holds and how that aligns with the society value system, um, that person inside of that can express a bit of free will in their actions because they know that the actions they're taking will be understood by those around them, right? And I'm not saying that you have to be in like a totally hegemonic society for that to be true. I think in the U.S. this is true. And we can all ascribe to subcultures that kind of confirm our own viewpoints inside of these little pockets of society where people just understand each other because they share a similar value system. I think it's easier to act on free will there. Whereas when you're in, let's say the, I mean, the world is, it yells, it's an, it's an aggressive place. It's difficult. You're going to feel <laughs> adversity always, right? Especially with people that you disagree with from a value perspective. And there, yeah, I think your free will is going to kind of diminish because you're going to be more reactive, if that makes sense. Uh, yeah, no, I like that. I like that. Um, honestly, I think it's it's kind of bizarre to bring up uh, free will in the limitations that you have on expressing your free will in the society around you, um, especially based on, like, you have a value system that is going bottom up and like giving you programming that's influencing your moment. And then you have like a value system from the world around you. That's like top down hitting you every second. Mm -hmm. And then you're supposed to kind of decide who you want to be in the moment, you know? Um, and I think, I think one of the things that i I personally value, like the moment when I see, you know, like you said, I, I believe I have free will because it's, I mean, it's literally better to believe it than not to believe it in your own life. Um, mathematically, it, there's a Punnett square that you only come out good if you believe it. But um, <laughs> I, I love the, uh, the fractal nature of thinking about your value and how it's, your value systems and how they're affecting you in the moment. You know, when you think about the way that you're thinking, like you brought this up earlier, Dave, is in that moment when you're about to react and you stop and you go, do I, could I, could I be that awesome person I always want to be right now if I just took an extra, those are the moments when I think, dare I say, you get to almost like revise or solidify your value system, like the better, the better angels of your nature, you know, you get to like, you get to call them to the front then. I really like that description. Especially because it makes the transference from it's not just a thought or it's not just words, right? It's actual action. You know, it's mm. demonstration of your value system. Mm. Yeah, because I mean, because I mean, how many times I can tell you I've done this a million times myself, I've verbalized my value system in some way. And then I do something that completely contradicts that. Mm -hmm. I Everybody. do it. All, right. It's called being a hypocrite, right? <laughs> but I think that's an important piece to note is that I think people can lie to themselves about their value system and use that as a crutch to kind of justify what they're doing, which is where value systems become a little dangerous to me. 
Hmm. Well, to put a positive spin on it, to, to echo what you said, is it lying? Is it, uh, is it um, going against your, your value system or is it revising your value system? Right. I mean, just because you say you do something that you said you weren't going to do doesn't necessarily mean that it's wrong. It could have meant that what you lied to yourself when you defined the value system to begin with. Uh, but as right, you, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, if you, th- if you think about it, like think about someone criticizing you for going against something you said before, that really is denying you the freedom to grow. Yeah. Right. And, I mean, we can just see that how many, how many people, how many politicians, you know, you've been in the, you've been in the political sphere for more than 10 years. I guarantee you there's a soundbite of you contradicting yourself, period. Yep. And that's why I really like the term revise, because I don't think any of us, I know the three of us, and I would challenge most people listening. If you looked at your value system 10 years ago as opposed to today, it's different. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> right? And is that a bad thing? No. Well, I mean, if everybody, if every human being on earth is guilty of it, then, well, what's bad about that? Uh, nice. <laughs> well, right, right, right. Like no, I think revising your value system is integral to having a value system, right? It's why yes. you were taught successively over years when you're a child certain lessons that you're ready for at a certain age right like you're not going to break down quantum physics to a six-year-old unless they're an astoundingly unique six-year-old right Mm. so if your if your value system doesn't revise if you don't re-examine it ever kind of calls into question how how much you even care about your value system but (laughs) you know I, i think that kind of shies away from the fact that I think all people will have a value system, but how much of that value system they've contemplated and have kind of thought through in all aspects of their life might be lower than, I don't know, some number. Because I think a lot, it's just easy to pick up values from other people and just run, co-opt them and run with them. Well, black and white values are the easiest to follow. Well, I mean, it's just like, you know, you start a new job, let's say, and it's an office job. There's 10 people in the office. You're not going to walk into that feeling like you are fully yourself because as an individual, you don't, part of who you are is who the people around you are. So it's hard for you to understand like the full complexity of the situation you're walking into. So when someone makes a joke that you feel like, ah, it wasn't that funny, you're still probably going to give it a, a decent chuckle, you know, because you know that action is an overture to saying i want to be a part of this group to some degree Mm -hmm. right well it's interesting i also i also see that as like a level of manipulation you know like and i don't mean that in a bad way but it's like the best way for you to get ahead here is to demonstrate some sort of sort of like social cohesion you know i i also understand that goofiness you know um Mm -hmm. and that that like that i think I think you can laugh consciously, but I think most people would do that unconsciously. I think that's that root programming, that DNA saying like, you never know when you're going to need to borrow a cup of sugar from that person. So you better laugh the first time they tell a joke. You know what I'm (laughs) saying? Right, right. It's very easy for us as individuals to have our value system encoded into us from external sources, like the top-down method you're talking about, Garrett. Right. And, And I think it's important to I mean, it's going to happen, A. You can't avoid it unless you go live completely off the grid, which I think mm. is 
it, you know what? That's a response to the top down stuff you've experienced. You <laughs> right. Know? It's still, you're still just as much interacting with that top down, right? Um, yeah, that is funny how that works out. Yeah, I don't think anybody who's lived all on their own in the woods is yearning for an experience all on their own in the woods. You know what I mean? It's just, <laughs> it's just whatever. The day one, <laughs> right? Um, I do have an interesting question. Uh, it's a little bit of a fractal question, but do you feel like there are levels to values? And I know we've already talked about the the like low level. What I mean by it's like, are we prepared to make a quality judgment based on someone's values? Um, are we are we ready to say like someone who only values like money and like promiscuous sex, their values are lower than someone who is trying to feed the homeless and make the world a better place and improve education? Are we ready to to really take a step out and decide what is good and like Plato's definition of the word and what is less good on this value system? Because it really seems pretty subjective i'm wondering where we're at on it so here here's how i think about it i think of a culture or a let's say society so let's say the united states the society of the united states is a weird society because it's you know it's pop culture basically it's it can only be something that all of the society understands together right Mm. um so that level of consciousness on a societal level is going to be pretty limited to like a few topics right Hmm. I mean, just look at any any election in the past couple decades. How many hot button issues are there per candidate? Two, three, something like that. I mean, it's pretty hmm. it's pretty much it, right? So then you start to break it down into smaller groups because obviously part of societies is where you live, your geography, and who you're around. So then you you know you start to kind of like in your fractal idea, you start breaking it down to finer finer granules of information. And I think you'll eventually, just by the nature of how this works, there will be currents of shared values, of norms, if you will. Um, normative behavior, I believe, is what the technical term would be. And mm. I think it's it's an organic process created by this complex ar- arrangement of how society ascends and descends down this order, if you will. So I think, to kind of get back to your real question, though, I think as individuals, we have to choose whether or not we're going to try and change that societal order. Yes. That's where it comes in, right? (laughs) Yeah. That's funny. I was going to, you said like currents of values and I was like, that's so beautiful. And then you were like societal norms. I think. (laughs) Uh, Let me, let me throw an idea out there. Um, So I really like the analogy of, of this, computer program. So I'm going to continue on with that. If you are five years old, your value system is a very, very simple program, right? You know, I, I think most of most of us who, you know, have been critical thinkers through our lives realize that things are much easier when you're younger because your program is very simple and answers are pretty binary. You know, there's good and evil, there's black and white. I, speaking for myself, and you guys can agree or disagree, but every year, my value system just gets a little bit more complicated, a little bit more complex, more and more lines of code added, more if-then statements, you know, telling a lie is bad. Well, sometimes telling a lie is can be a good thing, you know, in this scenario or this scenario, just more and more lines of code get added, and there 
things are just grayer and grayer every single year. I going back to your current idea, Ryan, you know, there are there are values that we can that I subjectively a lot of us would agree would be good versus bad. Um, but at different times in history, the opposite could have been true. And even now, if we think of, you know, going back to our to our capitalism episodes, somebody who's just free market, libertarian, laissez-faire capitalist would say that somebody who devotes themselves to feeding the poor and helping the sick is going against that system and is therefore bad. And somebody who does whatever they want and has promiscuous sex is good because they're, they're operating within that system. So I think good and bad is, is, is part of that cultural norm that you were talking about, Ryan. Um, but it's more the, it's more the depth of your operating system that we should be evaluating. How many lines of code is in that program? Because people with, you know, when you're five, uh, five lines of code, very black and white value system is fine. But when you are 45 and in charge of, you know, a business or something, or you're, you're leading parts of the government and you have this very simplistic operating system, you're going to make some very terrible decisions mm. that are going to impact a lot of people. It's interesting. Yeah. I, uh, well, are you guys following this metaphor? Yeah, no, I'm super following you. <laughs> yes and I like, no. Yeah. I hear you. Um, my question is, why do you need to add so much code year over year over year? Why can't you just refine the code year over year? I, I, I mean, I think, think we're probably saying the same thing um you know i'm not saying add to the code necessarily but you have this this operating system that says you know this is bad but then something comes along and you're like ah but is it in this situation Mm -hmm. that's so you're you know it's refining or or adding i I think i think i could be the middle ground between this because uh i see i definitely see both your points um and I don't want to just be that guy who just brings up meditation, but um, <laughs> no, please. You know, do. Like, this is a podcast, the, and we have yet to do it, so yeah, we're way right, overdue. Cool. Well, <laughs> today's the day. Um, so when you said like it just keeps getting grayer and grayer, like that really impacted me, and I felt it, and I know that feeling. You know what I mean? And that's how I felt. Like I just cleaned my house today. And it had been getting grayer and grayer in every room as I just let the stuff <laughs> running around. I'm doing so many projects. It's just like, I don't have time to put that away. I got to go mix this video, do that song, do this, do that. And then finally, today was the day. Uh, and that's the way our minds are. You know, they store all this information. And we all know that feeling when you really like, you think about something, you have that aha moment. Usually you don't realize it, but that aha moment is a giant culmination of lines of code. The aha moment is when you go, oh my gosh, that all fits together. I only need 30% of this. I need to reorient it like that. And you automatically cut the other 70% and throw it out. You know, and like that, honestly, like meditation will happen accidentally to you, but it's better if you just show up on the mat and make it happen, you know? And right. then you can go up and, and do all that cleaning and... Right, I mean, yeah. I think that's... So if we... You know, meditation definitely taps into the more spiritual and religious aspect of humanity, right? And I think mm-hmm. any great religion, any of the religions, are going to argue that refinement of your thought through meditation at some point is a necessity. Um, I can't Absolutely. think of any major religion that doesn't say that at some point. 
Um, and there's a reason for it because we, it, I think you put it in a really succinct way there, Garrett. I like that a lot. Like you get it and then you can reduce the amount of the capacity in your brain that you need to use that same concept again. Yeah. Um, and sometimes that 30% because like you reduce it to 30%, but it's worth three times more than it was before. You know, like there's a massive exponential quotient in there, you know, that's right. the wrong word, but massive exponential factor in there. Right. 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 Yeah. You, your bang for your buck goes up huge. Yeah. Uh, so if we, if we just superimpose that over the, the, computer program metaphor, Ryan, to your point, it's not just adding all of this code because, I mean, you can build a program that way and you can get to a point where the program is just so unwieldy and you can't fix anything because there's just lines and lines of code. Mm -hmm. But I think we make our systems more efficient, right? We can say, all right, you know, this part, actually, you know what, this is really black and white. We're going to delete all of this if-then statement and here it is, murder, wrong, period. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> cool done uh but so here's the thing um i mean i don't want to go down that road but what i will say is i think you're giving humanity a little too much credit here and you're saying we do this period and well, it's like correct. it's I you agree. know the the practitioners of i don't know uh metacognition are, are grant you know the thinking about thinking that you're granted once you step into that world and the you know what the frustrating thing about bettering yourself is is it's a constant game it's a constant battle because you can like get all the way up and you're 28 and you're nailing it and then you can turn around like two or three years later and be like oh man have i not been practicing i gotta go back up and clean everything out and it's full of cobwebs you know you gotta start back at like level seven you know so that's uh i I just felt like speaking up on that one because it's saying yeah humans do this has given us too much credit (laughs) <clears throat> I'm not saying everybody's program is efficient. <laughs> well, it goes back. I mean, Garrett, it goes right back to where we started with you, th- with you saying your value system is expressed moment by moment. So mm-hmm. if you're not in the refining process moment by moment, you're not going to refine yourself, right? So right. it speaks to the cyclical nature. And I think what makes it so difficult for humans to keep up with this is that it's exhausting. You know, or at <laughs> least at least it can be, you know? Yeah, that's, uh, you know, man, I'm good at the guitar today because I made practice fun within the first couple minutes of starting. And so I every I showed up back to it every day because I wanted to. And now, you know, now I can play the guitar. Um, And if you make your practice to be a good person, a terrible, annoying fight uphill that you don't want to do every day. I mean, even if you end up being a good person, what do you have 10 years of moments that you didn't enjoy? (laughs) that's that's such a gem of wisdom right there like doing anything changing yourself in some way in any way in even the simplest way you can imagine is so unbelievably challenging that you need from day one and a virtually unshakable motivation to continue doing that or you won't do it. Hunger. Yeah, you need the hunger. You know, language learning. I taught English for a while and I mean, after, you know, you you realize very early on that the people who who have to learn it more often than not or are forced to learn it or have just this crazy drive to do it, they are the only ones who will ever master another language. You have to have that. It cannot be a passing interest because you'll fail. You just will, you know? Can't be excited about something one day and not the next. Right. Well, and that's, 
So that's that's how you're supposed to decide what you do with your life. I think that's like you got to try enough things until you find that thing that's like, holy moly, okay, I have, I can't live without this, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, in an ideal world, of course, yeah. It's, it's the ideal, yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> but I think what's just funny is how cyclical it really is, because you're talking about like, you've got to find your path and you've got, but so much of that you you've learned from other people you know it's not like your own individual identity is in a cocoon and is not affected by the outside world right and then and then you also get into like all those decisions leading up to that that is your value system which kind of gets back to our original question episodes back what what is value Mm. you know i would love to hear you answer this one garrett because we've been working on it for a hot minute now (laughs) right on um, well, I will start by giving credit for this idea to Robert Persig, the guy who wrote Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, um, just because it's almost wholesale lifted from that, because I don't think I'd ever thought about value in any real interesting way until I'd read that book. And the whole thing is an inquiry into values and quality, uh, what it means for something to be quality, what it means to value something. Um, and his whole argument, I mean in so much as I can summarize it is that quality doesn't exist in a, in a mind. It doesn't exist in an object. Quality exists on the arrow between the mind and the object in the judgment. Uh, Mm -hmm. so the mind appraises an object and decides what its value is to it based on its, you know, desires or whatever. And if you take the mind out of the situation, then all you have is an object and quality cannot even begin to exist until you bring some evaluating capacity, meaning a mind, into the situation. So value doesn't exist or doesn't exist in a vacuum. It's our mind that value does not exist in a vacuum. Just like the rainbow doesn't really exist in a vacuum. That's our, that's our response to this tiny little frequency range, you know? Yeah. So value is just in the eye of the beholder. Value is a reflection of our attempt to exist together. Uh Yeah. I mean, that might be the most succinct way to put it there. Because especially, I think the important part is together. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. In isolation, this doesn't make any sense, you know? If you were the last person alive, does value still exist? Yeah, that's the question. Let's plumb that for a second. So you'd still have value because you're still trying to survive. And unless you somehow knew that there were no other humans humans left on Earth, which I don't know how you would even know that. Well, yeah, no, and there's something more to it, because, like, you're going to value a knife, you're going to value a lighter, a set of matches, like, no question. Would but, you value a piece of art? But the thing is, well, that's, <laughs> I think, I think yes, um, and let's, I mean, if we're going to get into it, this is like a post-apocalyptic world, this human knows other humans, so art's going to, like, remind him of, you know, so value, for sure. Um, but I think the weird thing is, like, this is the fractal pulling back an extra level, is... If they're like, let's take a human out of a test tube and drop them on Earth, you know, 10 million years from now, they don't know what humans are. They don't have language. They don't have words. They know how to survive, whatever. They're going to get the things they need to survive. Um, But I don't think the concept of value would ever cross their mind. You know, I really do think that like 
the talking about value is a reflection of trying to communicate about it and use it mm -hmm. to yours and your other people's benefits, you know? Right. I think it's in the act of trying to communicate this idea that's really, again, to your point, that arrow that connects these two things. It's not really either of them. It's between. And it's that yeah, action. You know what the Right, and the arrow's not for me. If I'm valuing this knife, we don't talk. I don't think about the arrow for me. I right. only think about the arrow in my effort to communicate it to you. If you, Garrett, were the last person alive, would you write music? That was the re that was what I was thinking <laughs> about. And honestly, I I I think I would. I sing for and to myself all the time because I enjoy it. Um, Yes, I think I, I, I would. I would. And that's, what does that mean? Yeah, who are you communicating to? If uh, I feel like going real, <laughs> real meta on that one, um, you know. Uh, well, the um, Khalil Gibran in The Prophet has a bunch of wonderful things to say, but uh, one of the things he said is, your children are not your children. Your children are the universe's longing to know itself. You know, and when I'm really by myself and singing, I do not feel like me. My best songs don't come from me. I shut up and get out of the way and I get to spend a precious couple minutes not being me, but being the universe, you know? Yeah. So hopefully if I was the last person on earth, I could still achieve that. Yeah. We, we've talked about that before. The, the muse. I mean, that's, you know, but the, the story of the muse is, you know, God or the universe is speaking through you in some sort of artistic medium. Mm. Right. <laughs> for once you're not writing the song, the song is writing itself through you for once. You're just the conduit. Yeah. Now that, um, well, and it's funny because to pull everything back, like I value those moments almost to the exclusion of all else, you know? Um, <clears throat> I feel like all my amazing moments are spent like leading up to those moments. Uh, so what does that say about my value? Because I'm almost always a uh, value system because I'm almost always by myself in the moment for those. I mean, actually, I've, I have I counted the other day, I have eight songs that came out of my heart like a rocket and I did not write. Uh, and I was alone for every single one of them. That makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. I think being able to expose yourself to that level of intimacy essentially right yep. it's uh that's a really scary thing to do in front of someone else huh well yeah, yeah that was my question have any of those remained for your ears only oh no <clears throat> no i no i uh the only songs that i've never played for people are songs that I like made up in the moment. And there are a couple of them that have been intimate enough that I wouldn't choose to play them. But even it, they didn't remain because they weren't in, I didn't value them enough to continue playing them. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but even my most intimate and revealing songs I have played at least for one person. Yeah. I, I really liked what you said about um, value sort of, helps you decide where to focus your energy. Mm. And I think a lot of people have, 
I think a lot of people go through their entire life and they don't necessarily find those one or two things that they really want to push their energy to. You are really the exception to that in, you know, <laughs> I've known you for a long time and you found in music the thing that you will put more energy into than anything else. Yeah. Why? Well, I started really making art as an adult at 18. I wrote like a hundred poems in the span of a year or something. And it was always just to get knowledge out on a piece of paper. And I didn't know why yet. And then I started painting for like two or three years. And I, at that point, I realized I was trying to make the world a better place through these paintings. And then I picked up a guitar and I started writing music. And I was like, yeah, no, I'm trying to make the world a better place through this music. And then I started teaching science to little kids and writing children's books. And I was like, yeah, I'm trying to make the world a better place through this. And I realized at the end of the day, like the teaching and the music is the way I can reach people. I've made a couple people cry with a couple of my songs. It made a homeless man cry just by playing this one riff that ended up being a song for my, you know, departed father. And uh, it was like moments like those where I was like, yeah, no, I can really reach people. And if you can reach people, you have the ability to really communicate in like a lasting and meaningful way. And I feel like I've watched the things that I say change people's lives. So I have some sort of responsibility to at least try and communicate in a meaningful way. And music seems music and teaching science to kids are the two easiest ways. I think it's interesting that um, with your value system, you know, it's worth being shared. Mm -hmm. All right. <laughs> I mean, cause that's like yes. basically like your value system. If I could sum it down and rephrase it, or attempt to, is a compulsion to change the world to be a better place. And you feel pretty confident you know some of the things that are going to make it better, which is good. I mean, it would be really bad if you're like, I need to make the world a better place. I don't know how to make it better, though. <laughs> you know, like... <laughs> Somebody help, yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. It wouldn't right. be very good, you know? Uh, hey, that's the dilemma of many, many people. Right. Well, right. sure. But you I know, think yeah. it kind of goes back again to that the simplifying idea that we talked about, the refining the code as we were the analogy we were mm -hmm. using. You've discovered this and you even said that when you're 18, you didn't know why you were doing it yet, which is to say that eventually you did know why when you reflected on your life. Right. Mm. So part of your discovering your value system and realizing that there was something in it that was driving you was able to take you to a place where you're like, yeah, I know this does need to be shared. Now, I'm obviously projecting and this is way simplifying your life, Garrett. But, yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah. I mean, it, it makes sense to me that it would pan out that way. Especially because I yeah. know who you are. It's like, yeah, it just, it kind of comes off of Garrett. Like, there's just this energy always coming off. Hmm. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. It's, uh, I got to tell you, man, like it, we were talking about the pressure, the social pressure on your value system that uh, the social pressure that gets, you know, ingrained in your value system. Uh, one, uh, one of the left and right decisions that you need to make that's super important. And I think people start, I see people starting to realize this right around 18, right when you get out of like high school and being forced to be by a bunch of people is you need to choose well who you spend your time with, you know, uh, they change so much about you. Um, and right around 18, 
I don't know if it was just the end of high school or whatever, but my friend group got shored up real tight. And the four or five people I spent time with made me a better person every day, you know. And between 18 and 23, I just, I turned into the person I really wanted to be, I think. I think there's a ton of wisdom in the in the saying that you're becoming the average of the five people you spend the most time with. I've not heard that. I like that very much. I like that, though. It's like if you, um, there's almost like a golden rule in that. Uh, there's a golden rule filter on that one. Like if you want, you are an average of the five people you spend your time with, um, that means you should aspire to spend your time with great people. And if there's someone who you are a great person in their life, you know, show up for them. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing more rewarding than being mentors or being a mentor, Hmm. you know, from a professional sense, from a life sense. Um, you know, it's great. I mean, I know the three of us have all had mentors and it's, I don't know, to me, it's the coolest feeling in the world when you finally can turn around and do that for someone else. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've, uh, I've played the house of blues for like a pack show, like 500 people and left midsummer in Chicago in a drop top, like looking at the stars. And that was an amazing feeling, Mm -hmm. but I felt way better coming out of a classroom of 20 kids that I just taught science to for an hour, like (laughs) walk out with my big old kit and I'm just looking at the sky like, yeah, this is what I live for. You know? Yeah. You know, I think a lot of people, myself included, right? I mean, I, my program probably, you know, it's getting a little bit more efficient these days, but for a long time, it was very, very convoluted. I think Ryan, I was adding on code instead of refining it. Um, I think a lot of people really, really struggle to find that, that base that, you know, distilling your value system down to what you just alluded to, to, to help people, to communicate people, to help people realize themselves and that manifests itself in these other way in, in music and in teaching and in art and in the things that you love to do. But I mean, the way that you speak about it, I don't think those things have nearly as much meaning to you if it wasn't to help other people with or through, through that, that medium or those mediums. How I think a lot of people have a lot of trouble calming or, or getting rid of the noise to really be able to, to get down to that fundamental thing that drives them. Hmm. Does that make any sense? Yeah, it is. Uh, it is a pressing question. I actually just had a little talk about the value of yoga and all that. And he asked me some questions and I realized I just right off the cuff, I was like, I don't want to talk about what yoga is. I don't want to talk about like the first postures you can do, you know, we'll talk about breathing later. I want to talk about the wall between someone and yoga because either someone's doing yoga or there is a wall between them from doing yoga. Uh, I want to help them see and identify that wall and to either climb it or get around it or dig under it. That's the only (laughs) thing I have to do here, you know? Yeah. And that like, that's, that's kind of how I see when I teach science to little kids, like I show up and I, they sometimes they only see me for one hour and I have one hour in this kid's life. My goal when I leave that classroom is to have them exploding with the feeling of awe for the universe. If they just cannot freaking believe this giant thing and they have to understand <laughs> it, they'll do the science themselves. You know, yeah. they'll ask their teachers the right questions for the rest of their lives. You know, yeah, it's inspiring being a catalyst for change or inspiring people to change catalyst 
you could call me a catalyst. Hey.